This morning, I'm going to finish the story of Jephthah that I began last week. Wow, Jephthah. A man that God raised up to deliver Israel from their idolatry. Because of their idolatry, they had a huge enemy, the Ammonites, that had come against them for 18 years. The problem again with Israel, they continually drifted into idolatry. It became just a way of life. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry is when we find our joy, our peace, our satisfaction in anything that is created. That Then it becomes so central to us that if we lose it, our life falls apart and we go into despair and discouragement. It could, be, it could be money. Money is what maybe would bring us joy and peace and contentment, and then when we lose our money, we fall into despair, even to the point where we feel like life is not worth living. Then money is an idol. It could be our position. It could be relationships. It could be our family. Anything that could be taken away from us in this created world could become an idol that when we lose it, we fall into despair. And Israel, as we know in the days of Jephthah, they went after seven different gods. Like literally every god of the nations around them, they loved more than they loved the one true God of heaven, who we know as Jesus. Isn't that crazy? The book of Hosea goes to far as to say they loved the raisin cakes of the pagans more than they loved the one true God. Can you imagine you're eating a raisin cake and as you're eating it, you're thinking, oh man, I love this and I love these idols. With, with no thought of the God who created you and ultimately will save us from our sins. Well, that is the nature of idolatry. Idols, we think we can take them for our pleasure and enjoyment and they will serve us. But no sooner do we bow down to one of these idols than it becomes the master and we become the slave. And as a result, Israel needed constant rescuing. And so he, he rescues the nation Israel with Othniel. That's, we have six major judges. Othniel, and then we have Ehud. Then we have Deborah and Barak. Then we have Gideon. And now we have Jephthah. It's, it's, it's interesting. What is God's purpose for us? He is to save us from our sins. So Othniel, Othniel represents Jesus saving us from our sins. Then Ehud, remember Ehud? He was the judge with no right arm. Maybe born paralyzed, or maybe it wasn't even there. He lost it in an accident. He's a left-handed judge, which was considered an outcast in that society because the right hand was a place of honor. He makes a sword without a hilt, and he tapes it to his leg. He goes to meet the king of Moab, and nobody thinks that Ehud can do anything without a right hand. But Ehud has practiced. He grabs the knife out from under his garment, and he stabs the fat king in the belly. His gut splits open, and his intestines spill on the floor. Ehud locks the door. Meanwhile, all of the king of Moab's attendants are thinking, oh no, the king has gone to the bathroom. We can smell it. So we better not disturb him. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And what has Ehud done, the judge? He has already jumped out the window, window, scampered down, assembled his army, and they win. God uses some of the most unexpected means to save us. Like a baby in Bethlehem, who is God in flesh, laid in a feed trough of a, she, of a sheepfold, and he, he dies on the cross to pay for our sin. Isn't that so unexpected? But then, Deborah and Barak. God raises up Deborah, because there's another enemy that has come because of idolatry. And this time, God says, you must assemble 10,000 men up on a small hill. You must do this exactly as I said, as I say, because I'm going to send a rainstorm that will flood the field 
and all the iron chariots, 900 of them will sink in the mud and you will win. But you must obey every word. You know how God saves? With obedience to his word, to his will, in the days of Deborah and Barak. Just like Jesus died on the cross, just according to the, God, to the will of the Father. And then you have Gideon. Gideon, who goes with 300 men holding torches and pitchers, yelling against all the Midianite army, 135,000. Tremendous odds against Gideon, but with humility, he is able to win. God is able to win a great victory that day. You know what that tells me? That when God saves, he uses the humble to confound the wise and the powerful. Just like Jesus. Nobody would have thought nailing Jesus to a cross would do anything except put the end to death this man. Instead, it opens the door to rescue anyone who would place their faith in him alone. And now we come to Jephthah. What a character. Remember this from last week? Jephthah is the son of a harlot. His mom is one of the local prostitutes. His dad is married to a woman and has other children. So the half-brothers, as they raise up and the dad dies, the half-brothers say, Jephthah, your mom's a harlot. Get out of here. You don't get any inheritance. No financial future from dad. So they kick Jephthah out. Jephthah goes off to the land of Tov, and there he's got leadership abilities. This man is a natural leader. He raises up a gang of worthless thugs, and they go out and they raid cities and villages. Yeah, this guy is the CEO of a crime gangster. Bo- he's, the, he's the boss of a gangster rally. And they are going and doing destruction in all the different towns. And God says, I want to use that man and I'm going to raise him up and use him to deliver my people from their sin. Isn't that incredible that God could use a Jephthah? Like, I would not have chosen him. Do you want to know what's neat about Jephthah? The only thing that I think is awesome about him, he keeps his word. Just like Jesus made a promise, he keeps his word to us. So we know the story. Jephthah is all about the spoken word. Now, God raises Jephthah up to deliver his people, and Jephthah does not go to battle right away. He is a diplomat, so he has a meeting with the enemy king and says, enemy king, why are you harassing Israel, my people? And the king said, you stole our land. And so after a time of diplomacy, the king of Ammon says, forget it, Jephthah. I don't take your arguments. We're going to battle. And so Jephthah, with the Spirit of God, is going to battle and he's going to win. But on the way to battle, do you remember what happened? He's on the way to win and he, he begins to doubt. He begins to wonder, is God really going to help me in the day of battle? So he says a very foolish thing. He makes a vow. He says, Lord, if you let me win the battle, then whatever comes out the door of my house, when I come back in victory, I will offer to you as a burnt offering. He wins the battle, and as Jephthah's going home and he's riding high with a great battle on his, on a, his victory um, belt, his daughter, his only daughter, comes out the front door, and he grieves. He says, oh, daughter, why did you do this? I made a vow to the Lord that whoever came first out of my house, out of that door, I will kill and burn their body up to ashes. And you know what the daughter says? Oh, Dad, if you have given your vow, your word to the Lord, you must do this. But just give me two months to wail for the fact that I'll never get married and have children. 
So he gave her two months. She went up in the hills with her girlfriends and cried and cried for two months. She came back and said, Dad, you can kill me. This man who was a thug, the boss of a crime unit, of a a boss of criminals, God raises up and he makes a foolish vow. Why did he make such a stupid vow? It is. It's bad. It's, It's evil. Why? Because in his mind, his relationship with the God of Israel was so mixed in with the ways of the world. Everybody offered their children to the gods. If you wanted to please the gods, you would kill one of your children. Just, get, just have a bunch of children. And then you could give one away, and it's not going to affect you so much. But this is his only daughter. Everybody, can you visualize this? He has to take out a knife. He has to plunge the knife into his daughter's body somehow. And when her body lay still, she was a virgin, so she was young. While her body lay still, he um, no doubt picked her up. He laid her on a bunch of wood and then lit the wood on fire. Until there was nothing left but ashes. Because he, he made a foolish vow to the Lord and he, he had to keep his word. God didn't agree with the vow. It doesn't say whether God was pleased or not with anything of it. He shouldn't have done it. it he, God says, don't do, don't do what the Canaanites do by killing your children and burning them up to the gods. Don't do it. But Jephthah did it. And, and just as Tom read, Tom, where is Tom? Thank you. Oh, Tom, just as you read, Jephthah's in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. A man with that kind of failure, God says he's a man of faith. Like Tim God can use anybody. But, boy, I mean, it doesn't mean just go out and do those things. He uses us in spite of ourselves. So that's where we left off the story. But the story doesn't end there. The story now picks up in chapter 12. So let's, we're going to walk through chapter 12 together, you and I, in the next 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, and, and I hope you can come away with some understanding of what's going, how the rest of Jephthah's life went. Because up till now, he's had some high po- po- times, and he's had some absolutely disgustingly bad times. Kind of sounds like our lives, doesn't it? There were two merchants, one across the street from the other, in competitive businesses. And they hated each other. And they were rivals to the point where the one business owner would look across and see what customers were going in and out. He didn't care about his own customers. He was just looking to see who was going in and out, the neighbors. And he was doing everything to discredit the other merchant and to destroy his business. And the other guy was doing the same thing. And one day, an angel came to the one merchants and said, I will give you one wish, whatever you want. But whatever you wish for, I'm going to give your competitor, the rival merchant, double. So the man was thinking, hmm, if I ask for a lot of wealth, my my enemy is going to get double. I don't want that. Hmm, long life is going to get double long life. I don't want that. 
Um, I know what I'll do. Get, make me blind in one eye. Can you imagine? He's willing to lose his own eye just so that his neighbor could lose both. Talk about self-destructive. Isn't that bad? That he would be willing to destroy himself in order to make somebody else suffer. That is the story of of Judges chapter 12. Look at this. I'm going to give you the confrontation. Look at what happens. Verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, okay, so you've got this whole tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, one of the 12 tribes, coming over to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Wait. Ephraim, they go to Jephthah after, listen, what has happened in Jephthah's life? He had a great victory, and he just burned up his daughter. He is suffering. He is an emotional wreck. He is, he is in absolute despair. And they come to him and say, Jephthah, why didn't you call us to battle? We want the glory. We want everybody to put us in the papers and the headlines. But you didn't do that. So we're going to burn you. We're going to kill you and burn your house down with fire. Uh, Jephthah, remember what Jephthah is. He, he was the former leader of a criminal gang. He's not going to take this too easy, I bet. Let's look what the Bible says. Here's the confrontation. Verse 2, Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. Jephthah says, Hey, people of Ephraim, I called you. I told you I'm going to battle. I told you it's going to be rough. We may not win. You're going to lose some people. I told you, but you didn't show up. All right? It's your fault. You want to, be, you want to get the glory in the battle? You've got to fight. Look at what verse 3 says. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, hey, you people, they didn't show up. Ephraim was called, but they didn't show up. Here's what, Ephra, here's what Jephthah said. I took my life in my hands. I crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Well, why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Hey, pride and jealousy, coming against anger and depression, is a bad recipe. You agree? You get some raw emotion with anger, with some people who are arrogant and jealous, and you put them in the same room, it is a monster that's going to come out of there. Listen, pride and jealousy is like one of the most horrible monsters. It has destroyed families. It has destroyed churches. It has destroyed nations. This pride and anger. And sure enough, that's the, con- that's the confrontation. Look at verse 4. Here's what I call the conflict. So verse 4, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. You guys, this is a civil war. Gilead are Israelites. Ephraim are, are, are Israelites. It is a bloody civil war. Brother fighting against brother. Hey, can I say something? Pride and jealousy always divide. Always. And do you want to know what Satan wants for every marriage? For every family and for every church, division. Satan right now is actively working to divide Faith Baptist Church. I don't know how he's doing it, but he's working it very deviously and he's very secretive. But he's working in people's hearts and minds and he will do anything to divide to keep, because anything that divides will not flourish. What does Jesus say? A house divided against itself 
cannot stand. A family divided against itself cannot stand. A marriage divided against itself cannot stand. Just like Charlie and Samantha and John and Angie and and Zach and Rachel encountered oneness at the marriage conference, Satan does not want that. He hates unity and oneness. He's all for division. And so here you have the Gileadites with Jephthah fighting the, the people of Ephraim. Here's what, look, at, look what it says in, the, in God's word, verse 4, the middle of it. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. Oh, stop. We, we read that often fast. We read that real quick in English. Two seconds, I can read it. Gilead defeated Ephraim. How many, like, how many husbands died that day? How many Israelite sons died? How many grandparents got the news? Your grandson died in battle today. It was foolish. Should never have happened. How many graves were dug in the next few days to bury those bodies? And it didn't need to happen. It's just you had an arrogant tribe against a man who was emotionally hurting and depressed. And he's actually a natural leader and gangster, so you just got nothing but trouble, right? This is what sin and idolatry will do. There is never a time when you sin, ever, that relationships around you are not hurt. You never sin alone. You never sin in private. You may sin in private, but the consequences are everywhere. Everywhere. Every relationship is affected when you sin. Well, here's what the men of Gilead, it says the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Massonites. Oh, what does that mean? They're basically saying, you people of Gilead, you're cowards. You're runaways. We're the strong tribe. We're the big tribe. You're little baby runaways. You're castaways. You're the leftovers of the big tribes. Oh, I grew up with this. Uh, You Help me with it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Names will never hurt me, right? That is a big lie. Names hurt. I can tell you every name I was called in sixth grade. I mean, my elementary years. <laughs> but particularly the sixth grade. I can, t- I can tell you the names I was called in the middle school. Kids spit on you in middle school. And as they spit on you, and their spit's going down you, then they call you a, a name. And I mean, you don't forget stuff like that. So here, Ephraim's saying, you Gileadites, you're runaways. Babies. Oh, they got angry. So you got just bad thing upon bad thing going on here. Look at the carnage. Verse 5. Here's the carnage. You've got the confrontation. You've got the conflict. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. Okay, so Gilead won. Now listen. Ephraim is on the east side of the Jordan. That's over here for you. So here's the Jordan, right in the middle. Oh, so here's the Jordan. Ephraim lives here. They had to cross the Jordan to fight the Gileadites. And now they lost. And everybody's running for their life. They got to go home now. If they they survive the battle somehow, they got to get across the river to go back to Ephraim. Make sense? But Gilead, Jephthah was smart. He put all the men of Gilead along the riverbank, the Jordan River. And as the people from Ephraim, the men of Ephraim, are trying to get across the river, they're stopped by a Gileadite. Here's what God's word says. 
Verse 5, the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived, and when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And he said, no. Then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth. They couldn't say the S-H. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. All right, is that, is that, isn't this horrendous? It's in the Bible. But it's tr- this, is, this happened. You know what Shibboleth means? It's, I, I, there's two ways you could look at it in the Hebrew. One could mean ear of corn. The other means current of water. I happen to think it means current of water. Because, can you picture this? So here comes a man from Gilead, or a man from Ephraim. I'm a Gileadite. Hey, um, why are you crossing over the Jordan? We're in charge here. And the man says, uh, uh, Hey, I, I'm from the tribe of uh, Judah. Yeah, I'm from Judah, and my family and I were uh, on vacation, and I, I have to go home to work. And uh, Oh, are you really from Judah? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm from Judah. Uh, what is the name of this? What's going on right here in the water? Uh, Sibboleth. No, no, say it again. Sibboleth. We're from Ephraim. Ephraim. Boom, kills him, lays him down right there. So the one tribe that wanted to be noticed and given headlines, I'm from Ephraim, they are now trying to say they're not from Ephraim in order to save their life. Ironic, isn't it? And 42,000 people died that day. Okay, real quick, what can we learn from this text? Well, then it says, Jephthah judged Israel six years. One of the, he's the shortest reigning judge in Israel, six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. He died a young man after only six years. He should have lived a long life. Why? Probably because he was overcome with grief. His daughter, his only daughter, his only child is dead. He just had to kill 42,000 of his own Israelites. The guy's a total wreck. Dies early. Gets buried. Doesn't even say they had peace. He just dies. You know, see, things are so unraveling in the nation, it's crazy. All right, so real quick. Why was Jephthah so harsh with the Ephraimites? Number one, he was so harsh because he was emotionally drained, he was depressed and absolutely devastated. Over his daughter and life. Be careful. There are people in our church, probably, that are going through deep pain and don't, don't look like it. I don't think anybody would have thought Jephthah was crying over a daughter. Do you see Jephthah, this, this gangster, taking out a Kleenex and going, <laughs> he, was, he was a tough guy. Nobody knew how bad he was hurting, but wow, is he hurting bad? And when he was given, some, uh, when he was given a challenge and when he was na- called names, he just went off, he flipped out. Uh, number two, he did try to call Ephraim. They just never showed up. Ephraim has a major problem. You agree? All right, take your Bibles. Go with me quickly to Psalm 78. Look with me at Psalm 78. I want to tell you a little bit about Ephraim to show you what they were really like. And this is a warning for us. Let's go to Psalm 78, verse 9. Talking about the stubborn, rebellious Israelites. This gives us a clue as to what Ephraim was like. Back in the days of Gideon, so you're talking a couple of generations before Jephthah, 
a couple of generations. Ephraim did the same thing to Gideon. So the way that the Ephraimites, the way they challenged Jephthah, their great-great-grandparents were doing the same thing. This arrogant, this arrogant attitude was passed generation to generation to generation. Hey, families, families, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, be very careful because what we get going on in our life, we end up passing to our children, and then they're in that rut, and then they pass it to their children, and then they pass it to their children, and it takes an act of the grace of God to get out of that. So whatever's going on in your home right now, you are transferring to the next generation. And even after you're dead and gone, and another generation may rise up, if the Lord tarries, who knows what they're going to be like. It really challenges us in our parenting and grandparenting, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They turned back. You guys, they, they knew how to use a bow and arrow. They had the right outfits. They had, the whole, they had all the gear. They had a supply of weaponry. They had the ability to use it. But when it came time for battle, they didn't fight. They loved Memorial Day. They loved the parades. They loved the military music. They loved getting on their, mili- their, their soldiering outfits. And they loved to go around saying, we're the best, we're the best, north, south, east, or west. But when it came to actually fighting, they didn't show up. Big problem. Right? There's a lot of people who are believers in Jesus Christ. They know the gospel. They know parts of the Bible. They pray. But when it comes to battle, they don't show up. Like, listen, the thing that makes Jesus the sickest in the church age is lukewarmness. What does he do to lukewarmness? Vomits it out of his mouth. Revelation chapter 3. I mean, the thought of Jesus vomiting is weird. But when he's vomiting lukewarm Christians, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want, I want to be passionate and excited and joyful about the gospel, but I don't want to be caught before my God being lukewarm. And I think as we look at the Bible, Christianity this, in this age and generation is lukewarm. I mean, it makes me sick, and I'm not, even, I'm not even the Lord. I'm not even much like the Lord, but it makes me sick. So how much does it make the Lord sick? And then it says in verse 10, They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. Ephraim, they knew the Bible. They knew what obedience looked like, and they said, I'm just not going to do it. And they forgot his works. Hey, it doesn't mean like, oh man, I forgot about the Exodus. Uh, who is that guy? Um, Michael, uh, 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 I can't think of another M name. Uh, Moses, that's the guy. No, it's not that they forgot his works. They deliberately did not look at them. They deliberately did not reflect on them. Hey, I need to go to the gospel every single day that Christ died for my sins, or I'm going to be like the biggest sinner and idolater in the world, just by nature. I have to be remembering the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it's all by grace, that it's not of me, or, or I'm going to go astray so quick. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Hey, the one thing that they lacked was steadfastness. They passed every inspection, and they looked fantastic in the military parade, but they did not have endurance or steadfastness. And if there's one thing we need, endurance to the end of our, our day, right? I don't know when I'm going to die. I mean, I'm 51. Oh, it could be a long time. It could be. But even if it's 30 years, it puts me at 81. 
40 years will put me in 91. Um, I, I just think of Barry and Dick's mom. And as a 99-year-old woman, faithful to the Lord to the very end. That is a great, that's a huge testimony. That is a huge testimony to love the Lord at the very end of your life. It's very rare. And she lived a long life. And I think that's what I want. I I want to have that testimony. That whatever day I die, it could be said, I didn't stop loving the Lord. I didn't stop serving him. But Ephraim, uh, they didn't care. I found this statistic. Um, By the way, everybody knows our culture is quitters, right? Pretty much everybody, everybody likes to quit everything. It's rare, rare, rare to be doing anything your whole life. I commend those who are. I mean, I've been in ministry 25 years, and uh, I hope to be in ministry to the day I die. But um, for every one wife or mother who quits the house, the, the home, for every one wife or mother that, that walks away from the family and home, 600 men, husbands or fathers, leave the house, leave the home. Can you believe it? For every one wife that leaves, 600 men. What does that tell you about men? Men, we are lacking something spiritual. We are lacking something godly. We are. Women, be careful, and and obviously it happens with women too, but for whatever reason, men are so passive. Men are so complacent. Men are so willing to sit back and, and coast. Shame on us. We should be guarding and protecting the home, building the home up, building the church up, seeing more people saved so Christ comes back and gets all the glory. But I'll tell you what, Ephraim, men and women, it's tragic. It is tragic. Marriage gets a little shaky, we're out. Church gets a little wobbly, we're out. People are easy to jump ship, right? It's like, sorry, you're here long, you're here, that's commitment. Just, it gets a little rough in your marriage, what do we do? What did you say? I think she said, keep with it. What did you say? Go to oh, go to dinner. <laughs> there you go. See, I know my wife's love language. My, my wife, she lo- yeah, so she likes to eat out. We eat out a lot. <laughs> but, but seriously, do you see what I'm saying about that? Okay, let's move on. Hey, why else did Jephthah act so strange? Um, Listen, he learned, uh, Jephthah obviously picked this up from his whole heritage. But listen, for 18 years, the Ammonites had battled against Israel, and Ephraim ignored them. They knew, Ephraim knew their rights. They knew what their rights were as a tribe, but they didn't remember their responsibilities. So we have to be so careful that, to know that we're responsible to our families, we're responsible to the church, we're responsible for one another. Um, go back, please, to Judges chapter 12. Quickly, as we close here. What are some quick applications? Um, here's, here's my first application. Those were just reasons why Jephthah was so harsh. We've got be, to be careful about those things, both Ephraim and Jephthah. Hey, um, number one, as I said, there are people that are in deep pain that keep it hidden. We're all hurting. I'm hurting. We're all hurting to some degree. Some are hurting way more than others. We need to be full of grace with those who are hurting in the church. Because people that are hurt and grieving emotionally and spiritually distressed, when it, whenever there's an issue, it just like pours gas on the fire, right? So I think we just need to be real sensitive to one another and gracious to one another and kind to one another. And when we find out a need, we support them, we encourage them, and we help them. Um, 
one of the greatest ministries you could ever have is just to listen. I told Melissa, if I put an ad in the newspaper saying that I'm willing to listen, just come in and I'll listen to anything. Uh, I bet I would be busy all day, every day of the week. Because people just need somebody that will listen to them. Um, Guaranteed. Number two. Here's the second application. Satan is always wanting to divide. He always wants to divide. Whatever it will take for you to go off track, Satan right now is putting it in place. He's already got it set up. He knows mankind. He knows you. Remember, it's like he's got a blueprint of your house. He's got a blueprint of your life. He's got a blueprint of your workspace. And he is saying, here's what I'm going to do to trip this believer up this week. I'm going to put this here, this here. He's got it all mapped out. He's a prince of darkness. And he is crafty. And he is trying to devour us. He is trying to destroy our testimonies and to destroy our lives. Even though he cannot take away our salvation, we can lose rewards. We could lose many, 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 many blessings and rewards from the Lord. Um, don't let him always win. By the way, if Israel, with the civil war, if they, if they actually divided, do you know what would happen if Gilead and Ephraim so divided the entire nation? Jesus could never be born. Ultimately, Israel would cease to exist and we would have no savior. That was Satan's goal. Kill each other off so that no Messiah could be born. Tragic, but he can't always win. Hey, third application, be humble. If Jephthah would have just taken a step back and been humble, if Ephraim would have been humble, it would have diffused the whole situation. There wouldn't have been 42,000 people that died over not being able to say Shibboleth. <laughs> right, y'all? Um, you get the idea, right? Just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy that somebody could be, could be killed not being able to say a password right. Be humble. Um, Ephraim was there at the wrong time, with the wrong attitude, and the wrong enemy. We got it all wrong, and as a result, many died. Um, last application. Are we jealous of others? particularly the other churches in our area that are preaching the gospel and growing. I hope not. I hope you know, we just enjoy what God is doing here and pray for those other churches that are preaching the gospel. But um, we have to be careful because division is the child of jealousy. And we, we are so quick to hurt each other more than we are the world. Jephthah treats his own people worse than he treats the world. And sometimes Christians are the worst people. They treat others the worst They'll, like, un, like Christians, true believers will treat the world better than they treat each other. Shame on us. Uh, the last thing, and, and uh, again, um, real quick, the, there's three minor judges, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. I'm going to mention them briefly tonight. They come right after the story of Jephthah, but there's no, really nothing about them. Just like where they lived and where they died. Weird, isn't it? Why would God do that? He gives us all these details of Jephthah, and then we get like nothing about the next three. Here's why. Last thing. Because God doesn't just use major heroes. He doesn't just use the headline judges. Gideon, Jephthah, Ehud. He uses just the common judges, like Ibsen. Anybody ever heard of Ibsen? He's in the Bible. Elon? Elon. Um, sounds like a car person. But Elon, I mean, he's just a little minor judge. He lived, he died. No, nothing else. 
But God, were, God was using just the normal, ordinary people. God loves to use you and I. Just or, Who am I? I'm not like some big name speaker, Insight for Living with Brian Weeda. No, I mean, come on. No, you guys are the only people that will listen to me, and that's fine. That's, that's good, right? It's not that God's not only using a Chuck Swindoll or a David Jeremiah. He's using tons of just tiny common people like me and you. I love that. Isn't it great? Ibsen, Elon, Abdon. We don't know anything about them. But you know what? God says you don't need to know about them. You need to know me. And we do. Praise God. All right. Um, Let's pray. If you just bow your heads, please close your eyes. Such a strange story for church, isn't it? Not many people speak about Jephthah and Shibboleth. But let me ask you, just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, just quickly, the Bible makes it clear that the only way to have a relationship with the true and living God is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's to know that he died for your sins and he rose again. Whatever you deserve in a lake of fire, Jesus has already paid. And he wants you to place your faith and your trust in him alone. And he will give you, in response to that, your eternal life. If you add your works or religion to it, you negate the whole gift. So you cannot add anything to what Jesus has already done. So maybe that's where you need to be today. Just to come to the true judge, Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him alone. Do not trust your religion. Everybody in religion is is fallen and broken, just like Jephthah and Gideon and Ehud and Barak. Only Jesus is perfect. Only he died for our sins. So you, you must trust him alone, apart from anything that you might do. After that, then we live for him and love him and serve him and, and all of that. And secondly, don't be like Ephraim. Don't want the glory and the headlines without the battle. Actually, don't want the headlines at all. Please, be humble. But get in the battle. Don't be a quitter. Your family, your church depends on it. And if you are in deep, deep pain today, like Jephthah was. I want you to know that there is a God who loves you. He knows the sorrow and the depth of pain in your heart. And he is there. He has never moved. He is willing and able to help. And so we trust. Thank you, Father, for the story of Jephthah. This reckless leader, hooligan, that became the judge. He made a foolish vow, burned his daughter up, and had an angry conflict with his own brother, Israelites. What a story. But we can learn much about it, especially the grace of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all of these things, and even as we think of the three minor judges whom you give us no details We're thankful that you use just ordinary people like this church to do incredible things for your glory. Continue to bless and work in all the church and in each family. Help us to love one another and 
to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Protect this church, protect our families for the honor and glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Tonight we start um, chapter 13. It's the story of Samuel.